This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. When you enter the Reformed world, you find that we still use Latin from time to time. Particularly, you will hear or read people using a few Reformation slogans. We call them the solas. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. And sola scriptura, according to scripture alone. These are the most famous of the Reformation slogans, but there is another one that is just as ancient and that sums them all up. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. It was used both by Lutheran and Reformed theologians. It's in Luther's 1519 Leipzig Disputation, in Bullinger's 1534 Commentary on 1 Corinthians, and in Alstead's 1627 Synopsis of Reformed Theology, among other places. It's one thing to use these slogans. It's another thing to know what they mean, and especially this one, to God alone be the glory. Why is it important that we glorify God alone for our salvation? David Vendrunen is the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's written a new book on this very topic, God's Glory Alone, the Majestic Heart of Christian Faith and Life what the Reformers taught, and why it matters. This title, with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Well, first of all, why did you write this book? The short answer is that I was asked to write this book. <laughs> okay, well, that's always a good reason. Yeah, well, Why were you asked to write this book? Well, there is a series that has begun to come out from Zondervan, a series of five books on the five Reformation solas. And these five volumes have five different authors, but I was asked to write the volume on Soli Deo Gloria. And the invitation really came out of nowhere. I had no plan on writing this volume. It hadn't occurred to me to write this volume. But I thought about the invitation, and boy, there's hardly a better topic to write about. And I thought, this is a nice opportunity to take a break from some of the things I ordinarily do. And on the one hand, it's great because you can write about almost anything you want because everything relates to the glory of God. And so it gives you maximal flexibility. On the other hand, that makes it difficult in some ways, too, because in a sense, the whole of Scripture and the whole of our system of theology is before us. And if Soli Deo Gloria is actually true, then there's really nothing in our Christian faith and life that doesn't relate to it in some way or another. That was my first question when I began reading the book. I thought, well, how is it going to narrow this down? And I'm surprised it's only a couple of hundred pages. It could well, be. I have to keep within word limits, of okay. course. <laughs> All right. So that's exactly right. I mean, the glory of God does touch everything relative to the Christian. So, well, let's get into it. And as a sort of matter of background, it is one of the Reformation solas, as I said. It's as old as the others that are maybe a little more famous. And so that raises the question, why are we talking about Latin slogans from the 16th century? How haven't we outgrown those? Are they still relevant? It's a good question. Uh, you know, whether or not we need to keep referring to them in the Latin terms, I think, is a matter of indifference. But the idea of sola or alone, I think it remains very, very relevant. And here's one way that I would describe it, is that if you think about Reformation theology, when we talk about things like Scripture and faith and Christ and grace and God's glory, it's not as if the Reformers were the first people to talk about these ideas. Certainly the medieval theologians, they talked about faith, they talked about grace, they talked about Christ and Scripture and God's glory. So, They're not new topics. 
And so you might think, well, what's really distinctive about the way the Reformation spoke about them? And it really is the word alone that gets at it. It's not that the Reformers made up the idea that we're saved by faith, but the fact that we're saved by faith alone, well, that was revolutionary at the time. It wasn't as if the medieval theologians didn't think Scripture was important, but when you speak about Scripture alone being our final authority, well, that was a revolutionary idea in that context. So to talk about these Reformation solas is a way of pinpointing some of the very most important things that the Reformation was about that were not saved by faith and works, but by faith alone, not by God's grace and human merit, but by God's grace alone. And that really gets us to the heart of some of the very most important things in the Reformation. In the Westminster Confession 2.2, it says, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. And then at the same time, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do we relate those things? That's really one of the, I hate to say puzzles, but in a way it is sort of a puzzle that my book tries to explore. And on the one hand, you have the statements like the first that you read from the confession that speak of God glorifying himself and not needing any creature to bring glory to himself. And then you read in the catechisms that we are called to glorify God, and it doesn't seem exactly consistent when you first hear it. And I could probably give a very long answer to this, but— That's okay. We've got 30 minutes. Well, (laughs) just to—maybe we can flesh out the details as we go along. But I would say, in the big picture, that first statement you read is really the place to start, is that God is asse. He is independent of the creature. Uh, He doesn't need any creature. He didn't originate from any creature. He is self-sufficient. That's really important. We should maybe dwell on that for a minute, because— Sometimes people talk about glorifying God or they imply or outrightly say that he did something like made us because he needed us, he was lonely or something like that. So say that again, what you just said, because that's a significant point. Well, I was referring to this other Latin uh, phrase, the, the idea that God is ase, uh, God's aseity, his independence, that God doesn't depend upon his creation for anything. He is self-sufficient. And that's ultimately why we talk about God's glory alone, is that he doesn't need anything else to bring him glory. He is perfectly, infinitely, eternally glorious in himself. And yet at the same time, in the overflowing abundance of God's goodness, he has made a world in which he does delight to display his glory. And as part of the history of that world that he's made, he has created human beings in his image. And in fact, sometimes scripture relates those terms of image and glory. We are in a sense, the image and the glory of God. And he enables us to bring him glory, both now and especially in the life to come. And in some ways, it's something that probably is not fully comprehensible for us how the God who is all-glorious in himself also makes a world that redounds to his glory, that echoes his glory, that reflects his glory, and so much so that we can talk about our being glorified, but it's only in God 
in Christ and in the Spirit that we are glorified. And it never ends with ourselves. It always ends back with the honor and the majesty of God. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Why is this question so fundamentally biblical. In other words, we started out talking about Reformation slogans, but your way of talking about it seems to suggest that this idea of God's glory and his glory being of himself, and yet we responding to that by glorifying him, that that really all comes out of Scripture. It does, and it's all over Scripture. I mean, listeners at home could pick up an English biblical concordance and just look up the word glory and find how many times it's used. It's obviously that's not what you want to limit your study of God's glory to, but you just think of all the times that the angels or human beings are called to give glory to God. Think of the opening of Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And one of the things that my book tries to do is to talk about it, not abstractly, but in the context of the outworking of the biblical story of redemptive history and God's plan of salvation. Because I think that's where you really begin to appreciate God's glory. Scripture doesn't reflect on it in some sort of abstract way, but it reflects on the glory of God in the context of God's creation and of his plan of redemption, ultimately as it's fulfilled in Christ and in the coming of the new creation. There are instances in Scripture where we are sort of given glimpses of God in the heavens, as it were, which is not utterly abstracted from the history of redemption, but then also there are manifestations in salvation history. So I was thinking of Isaiah when he's given a glimpse of God, not as he is in himself, but as he's revealed to us. And then how does Isaiah react when he sees that? Yeah, that's right. Just to back up for a moment, you see, say, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. So in a sense, we might say that's not dependent upon history in the same way as these other things are, that just the very created order displays the glory of its creator. But then, as you're saying, we have these incidents in Scripture in which God's glory is revealed in some kind of special way. And as you refer to the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, and he sees God high and lifted up, uh, and Isaiah's reaction, he says he's, he's undone. I mean, he falls down. He's overwhelmed by the greatness of God, and also in comparison with his own lowliness, and especially his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people. And that's something that we see throughout the scriptures, is that when human beings are confronted with these special revelations of God's glory, they're overwhelmed. There's a sense in which we should be overwhelmed just by the glory of God in creation. You know, Romans 1 speaks about how we ought to be constantly cognizant of God before us in the things that he has made, but it's really in these special manifestations that we begin to have this special sense of the majesty of God. Exodus 4, Moses comes face to face with God manifesting himself in the fire, and then the whole revelation, really, as we're sort of given glimpses of the ascended, glorified Christ and the angels worshiping and all of that. We are given those glimpses, but nevertheless, much of the revelation of God's glory is given to us in the context of the process and the history and the development of redemption. So trace that out for us. Yeah, just to give a little sense of this, which is a big part of my book is trying to unpack this. And the place in Scripture, if you're just starting in Genesis and you start working your way through Scripture canonically, the place where we begin to see God's glory reflected on explicitly is with that cloud that led Israel through the wilderness, pillar of cloud and fire. And that is many times associated with the glory of God. And so, in part, this is a visible manifestation. There's an outward, awesome character character to this that 
display something about God. And yet it's very interesting that this revelation of God's glory in the cloud is not just there for display, it's there to bring the people into relationship to God. And on the one hand, what we see through that story as the cloud leads them through the wilderness to the promised land is that many times the cloud draws near to the people and the people are blessed as they are brought into the presence of this glorious God. And at the same time, there are many ways in which they are excluded from this. You know, they're not allowed to come too close. You know, they're not allowed to go up on Mount Sinai where the cloud is especially revealed. They're not able to go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that that glory fills. And they're reminded that because of their sin, that too close of a contact with that holy glory of God spells doom. And so there's something very magnificent about the Old Testament story as the cloud not only leads them through the wilderness and becomes identified with that tabernacle or rest upon that tabernacle. And then when the temple is built, it rests in the temple in a special way. There's something unsatisfying about that story, even though it's so magnificent, because the people are constantly reminded that as sinners, they don't belong in the presence of such a glorious God. And so he's a God who draws near in his glory and yet at the same time is a God who brings them under judgment uh, for polluting his holy glory. And I think as we come to the New Testament, there's this sense that builds that there has to be something more to this story. There has to be some sort of fulfillment that is going to make Soli Deo Gloria good news for God's people. As you're tracing this out, I kept going back to Adam. When God approached Adam in the garden, he offered him communion, union in glorious fellowship. So that was what was on the table at the beginning which Adam could have entered into, but tragically, mysteriously, and uh, horribly chose not to. Right. And that is very important context for what I was just saying about this Old Testament story, is that as human beings, we were made for communion with this all-glorious God. And Adam had some measure of that communion before his fall, but we were destined for something much greater. And that's why this idea that we find in that cloud of glory, this idea of God drawing near to his people and drawing them into fellowship with his glory, that is, on the one hand, this is a sign that God is actually seeking to remedy what was lost in the fall, that Adam's original destiny is actually meant to be fulfilled. God still wishes that to be fulfilled. He still wants human beings to commune with him in his glory and to have some sort of mysterious share and participation in that glory. And that's why the rebellion of Israel through those long ages is such a tragedy because you see that this destiny for the human race is unable to be fulfilled as long as human beings remain sinners under the curse of God. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474 Westminster Seminary California for Christ his gospel and his church 
You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Dr. David Vendrunen about his new book, God's Glory Alone. A moment ago, you said something about in the New Testament, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, has to become good news. As we were just talking about a moment ago, God from the very beginning created human beings with this destiny to share in this everlasting glory with him, the glory of the new creation. And that's what human beings lost in the fall. And it's easy for us to see how faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone is about the gospel. But what we really want is if the gospel is to be truly good news, the message has to be that we are welcomed into communion with the God of all glory. And so for the biblical story to work, the New Testament has to show how human beings can be restored to the fellowship of the living God and how the approach of God's glory to his people can be something that is truly a blessing to them and not something that brings curse and judgment, which is what happened again and again under the Old Testament. And that's where the New Testament takes us. In the story of the coming of Christ and the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we find how the idea of God's glory alone actually does become good news for the people of God. As you said at the beginning, the theme of soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, sometimes abbreviated just SDG. If you see that in a book that you're reading, that's what that means. Sometimes at the end of a book, a writer will simply write the letters SDG. So that's in case the listener wonders, well, what does that mean? That's what that means. It does touch everything, as you say. And one of the themes on which you reflect in the book, God's glory alone, is the distinction between God and idols. How does God's glory distinguish him from idols? Well, I mean, to start off with, idols don't exist. (laughs) They don't. They can't talk. They can't think. They can't act. They are. They exist, but they're not what they're represented to be. Right. They're the creation of human beings' imaginations. And as we were talking earlier, the true and the living God is a God who is all-sufficient to himself and independent and a God who accomplishes everything that he says. So the idea of uh, God's glory reflecting everything back towards God, it represents that this whole world exists for the purpose of exalting the living God. And you think about idols. What are idols? They're ultimately attempts of human beings to rule themselves, to govern themselves, because these are gods of their own creation and worshiped according to our own imaginations. And so there's a real sense in which the idea of glory to God alone is the death of all idolatry, because it is a way of saying, no, it's not about ourselves ultimately. And we can't rule ourselves. We can't control ourselves. We are dependent upon God, and we need to return all back to him since he is the one who's given us everything we have. You say that it's not about us, it's not about ourselves, but we live, as you say in the book, in a narcissistic age, in an age of the self. So how does, to God alone be the glory, help us respond to and deal with a profoundly selfish age? Right. There have been a number of writers who have talked about the narcissism of this present age. It wasn't something I was making up. And what they're getting at there is this idea of narcissism of being enraptured by oneself. We might think of it in terms of vanity, this obsession with our own image, uh, with what other people think of us. And this is always a temptation of the human race, obviously, is to be obsessed about ourselves and about our own image. But there are a lot of ways in which our modern culture encourages that. We have all sorts of opportunities to promote ourselves through social media, for example, and 
plenty of people do that, and Christians are tempted to do that. And yet the idea of all glory belonging to God, it means that, no, I'm not supposed to be seeking my own glory. I'm not to be obsessed about my own image, my own reputation. And in my book, when I'm talking about this challenge of thinking about God's glory alone in a narcissistic age, I call readers' attention to the idea of the fear of God. This is a very important biblical theme that I think it's safe to say we don't hear enough about it as we should, given the importance that it has in the scriptures. We are called to fear God, and that shouldn't be equated with a kind of a servile terror before God. Now, there is a sense in which sinners unreconciled to God, that's a very appropriate reaction to the true and the living God, who's the judge of all the earth. But even we who are in Christ, we're called to fear God. I think of Psalm 130. If you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who would stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Which is very interesting. Because God forgives us, we fear him. And it's a reminder that we are called to this awe and this respect and this reverence towards God, even as the redeemed. And in fact, we admire God not only because of his power and his judgment, but we admire him because of his grace and his mercy and his wisdom of finding a way to save us despite our rebellion. And if we live in the fear of God, I think that's tremendously important for keeping that proper perspective, that all glory belongs to him. It's not about me, it's not about creatures, but it's the God who has created all things and who sustains all things that is the object of our honor. We sort of expect God to be frightening and judgmental in the Old Covenant, in the typological history of redemption leading up to the New. We expect people to fall down and put their faces in the dirt and tear their clothes and that sort of thing. But there are not two gods in Scripture, and he's no less holy, no less glorious in the New than in the Old. And there are instances in the New where people do that very thing. Paul says he hopes that when outsiders enter into a worship service, they'll recognize that God is present and that they'll fall on their face before him. Yeah. As we look at the Old Testament story that we were talking about a little bit earlier, we do see God coming often in judgment. We see that presence of God's glory being the agent of his judgment. But we're reminded that that judgment is only a foretaste of the final judgment. And so God has not ceased to be a God of justice and power who is going to vindicate all his ways. And we also see in that Old Testament story, the grace of God drawing near to his people. We see him blessing the people as they worship him in the tabernacle and the temple. We see true believers of God fellowshipping with him. And yet that is a foretaste of a greater fellowship to come that is only going to be fulfilled when Christ, who is the true temple, when Christ upon whom the spirit of God rests without measure, appears and draws us to himself. So you're right, it is not the same God. And what we see in the Old Testament, both in terms of God's judgment and salvation, are pointing ahead to the greater manifestations of his salvation and judgment, which are revealed in the last days. We've been reflecting on some paradoxes relative to God's glory, and one of those you discuss in the book is Luther's theology of the cross and its opposite, which is the theology of glory. Take us through that quickly, and how is it that the theology of the cross really does glorify God? Yeah, when you think about it, Luther polemicized against the idea of a theology of glory. You might think, well, does Luther have a problem with God's glory? And the answer is obviously no, he's not doing that. But really Luther's point, when he criticized a theology of glory, he was getting at this human temptation to come to God on our own terms, to approach God 
with our own resources, through our own imagination. And Luther's big point was to say, no, we can only approach God on his own terms. We can only approach God as he reveals himself to us. And as Luther recognizes that God has supremely manifested himself in the humility of the cross. And if we really want to know God, if we want to know him savingly, we can't know God except through Christ and his humiliation through the dark road that led to Calvary. And the kind of paradoxical character of that is that by knowing God in the darkness of the cross, we are actually led to God's glory, that God most glorifies himself, we might say, that he reveals his glory in this special way in the plan of salvation, in which he shows how he reconciles sinners to himself. And you find that in the scriptures. You find that in the gospels a lot, where Jesus talks about God glorifying him as he's crucified. Now, we speak of it sometimes as the humiliation of Christ, and that's certainly very accurate. It is Christ's humiliation, but it's actually in that path of humiliation that God brings glory to himself because he accomplishes our salvation, something that we could never have done ourselves, something we never could have dreamed how this could have been possible. And this is very important for thinking about the Christian life as well, because as Luther's talking about the theology of cross and theology of glory, there are all these practical implications is that we recognize that in this present age, we are called to take up the cross and to follow him. Paul says in Romans 8 that if we suffer with him now, we will also be glorified with him. That just as Christ attained the glory of the new creation by way of the cross, so he calls us as believers now to take up the cross and to suffer with him for a time, knowing that in the marvelous plan of God, it ends in our glorification. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking to Dr. David Vendronen about his new book, God's Glory Alone. You spend a fair bit of time in this book on prayer. What is the relationship between prayer and God's glory? I discussed prayer at some length because if you look at Scripture and ask the question, well, how do we glorify God? That's an important question. And it would seem that the overwhelming response to that is through our prayer and worship. Are we called to glorify God in every single thing we do? Well, yes, but it's a much more prominent theme in Scripture that we glorify God through our prayer and worship. So that's one reason why I wanted to highlight it, but I also wanted to talk about it at some length because prayer is really hard. And I think that there are certain temptations in this present age that make it all the more hard. And I'm thinking especially of the distraction that we are constantly facing. Now, office hours would not be one of those. (laughs) But, you know, because presumably the listener is listening to us on some electronic device. Nevertheless, the electronic device on which the listener is listening could and frequently is a form of distraction. That's right. And so, I mean, this is not a brand new problem for the human race, but I do talk extensively about the kind of temptation to distraction that our present electronic age brings, is that we just have all these devices that are always around us, and they're beeping, and they're buzzing, and they're ringing, and we're trying to keep track of the news over here, and we're keeping track of our kids over here, and we've got, you know, some colleague emails us about work over here, and we're always doing multiple things at once, and we're kind of proud of that, you know, I'm really good at multitasking. As we walk into a poll. That's right. The fact is, is that we're not actually the kind of creatures that can really concentrate on a whole bunch of things at once. And there's been this research that's actually shown that our brains change, that if we live in a constant state of distractedness and dividedness, that we actually lose certain physical abilities to concentrate. 
to focus. I mean, there are all sorts of disadvantages that come when you can't focus. <laughs> a lot of life becomes more difficult when you can't focus. <laughs> Driving. Among others. But when you think about prayer, one of the challenges that Christians have always had in prayer is keeping focus, right? I mean, we're always tempted in prayer that we get distracted. We pray about someone and then we start thinking about that person. We pray about some trial in life and we start thinking about that trial. And God delights in us focusing upon him. He doesn't just want our words. He wants our attention. He wants our wholehearted devotion as we pray to him. And so part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to say that if we're called to glorify God in great measure through our prayer, then we ought to be very alert to the temptations that take us away from being good prayers. And I think our electronic age offers a lot of temptations. And obviously, we can't just give these things up. We live in an age of electronic devices, but we do need to be very careful that they don't lord it over us. So listening to office hours is great, but it doesn't count as prayer. And so if the listener is substituting office hours for prayer, that's a bad trade. That's certainly the case. And it's also the case that there are probably a lot of listeners, I'm not trying to make anyone out there in particular feel guilty, but they're doing a lot of other things as they're listening to office hours. And they're probably not giving their full attention to office hours as they're listening to it. I'm not saying that that's the highest sin. I don't believe that. Well, I, I, it's think, possible. I think the listener is totally and completely... It's possible. <laughs> It's possible. Involved, enraptured. It's possible. But it is the case, what you're saying, that it's very important for us to try to advance our understanding of God and His Word, and office hours is one way that hopefully that people can do that. But they need the self-discipline and denial of unplugging, pulling away, going to someplace that's quiet, whether that's in corporate worship, which would be the first instance, or privately and to call upon the name of the Lord in the way that he teaches us to do it. That's right. I think there's a problem with this thing that we hear sometimes, that all of life is worship. Now, is there a way that you can give that an orthodox meaning? Yeah, you can. But what's very important is that we don't think that simply by striving for excellence in all of our daily vocations, that that's a substitute for setting aside particular specific time in which we pray and worship, both privately and corporately and with our families. And that's what I'm talking about by worship by prayer. And you can't be texting and you can't be following some live college football feed while you're worshiping, while you're praying. God demands our wholehearted attention. And that's really hard for us in the present age to actually give our full attention to anything when there are so many temptations for distraction. I think there definitely are times you just need to turn things off put them in a different room so that you're not distracted. Well, we'll close with this. You have this marvelous quotation from Bavink in which he says, quoting now, the glory of the Lord is the splendor and brilliance that is inseparably associated with all of God's attributes and his self-revelation in nature and grace, the glorious form in which he everywhere appears to his creatures. This glory and majesty appeared to Israel. It filled the tabernacle and the temple and was communicated to all people. The glory is above all manifested in Christ, the only begotten Son, and through him in the church, which is looking for the the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is that quotation so apt for thinking about the glory of God? Well, there's a real sense in which what Bavink is getting at there sums up what I'm trying to do in the book. I'm not sure it comes off quite as beautifully in the book as it comes off in that nice quote, but I think what that does so nicely is that it begins by focusing upon God in himself, that God is glorious in all of his attributes, even apart from any 
work he's done in this creation. He is glorious in and of himself. And yet Bavink then turns to try to describe how God makes manifest that glory in what he's made and how he especially makes that known in his drawing near to his people both in the tabernacle and temple of old, and then especially now in the coming of Christ and the full outpouring of his spirit. And that really is the biblical story of God's glory. And it ends in the glory of the new creation in which we, in perfect blessedness, reflect back the glory of God. And what's so marvelous is that the fact that all glory belongs to God doesn't mean that we are demeaned as human beings. It actually means that we are brought to the full measure of what God has made us to be. And I think Bobbing's quote there seems to bring together this wonderful dynamic of how God, who is all glorious in himself, makes that known in creation and accomplishes all of his purposes. And we, as his people, are swept up into that story. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.